scripture reading today begins in verse 1 of Matthew 18. We're going, to read the look, we're going to read the verses we looked at last week to kind of set the context for what we'll be looking at today. And in verse 1 it begins, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So does not the will... Of my Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Would you pray with me and for me as we go to God's word today? Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we pray for your people, that they would be built up and edified through the preaching of your word. Father, we stumble in so many ways daily, and yet through you we can have hope that one day we will be stumble-free, both physically and spiritually, as we one day stand before you with your smile upon us, seeing us just as you see your one and only begotten Son, Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. Father, I pray for Jeanette and her family, Lord, uh, Jeanette's family. We just pray, Father, that you would be working um, in her passing, that you would allow the gospel to be preached and proclaimed clearly. So I ask that you would help me to do so as we come together to celebrate her life. But mostly, Lord, we're not celebrating just the life she lived, but the life that she is going to continue to live for all of eternity with you. So, Father, we just ask that uh, this would be a reminder for us how short our lives are, that it's just a vapor that quickly appears for a moment and then vanishes. And then all that we've done, all that we've stored up in heaven will be the only thing that lasts for eternity. So help us not to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, Help us to lay up treasures in heaven for your glory and our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to racing, the Tour de France is the oldest and one of the most prestigious of races of them all. And this race began in 1903, and it consists up to about 20 to 22 teams that have eight riders paired up per team as they race together, head-to-head with the best of the best around France's countryside, facing grueling conditions and sometimes treacherous paths. And needless to say, this race, it's no stroll around the park. It's not just going down the Paul Bunyan Trail. There's a lot to this race. 
This race requires remarkable achievement, enormous fortitude, vigilance, skill, and intense training. For without that, these racers have no chance whatsoever of winning that race. Because after all, one little slip-up, one little mishap can lead to catastrophe. And that's precisely what happened in the 2021 Tour de France when one cyclist failed to see an obstacle that showed up in his path with only 30 miles left in the race. And the results were devastating. A little closer than 126 as they've gone under that banner. Oh! oh a massive crash there. What has happened? It's a massive crash, Bob. It's completely... It was a jumbo Visma ride. It wasn't Roglic, was it? I think that was Tony because Martin. Because the whole... That just went down. It could down. have been Tony Martin. Yes, it could have been. And it just he just hit the side of the road and lost the front wheel. Oh. I think he went off the road. The road has got a nasty ridge on it there. As you can see, when it comes to racing, one little mishap, one little lack of avoiding an obstacle in your path can lead to quite the wipeout. It only takes just seconds. You can do all of that training, all of that preparation, and one little glance off the road, and before you know it, you're laying on the ground wondering, what in the world happened? How did you end up there? And as we saw in that video, not only can it take you out, but it can take your teammates out too. And why? All because you failed to see the stumbling block that was in your path. And so when you're in a race, you're going to have to be vigilant to watch out for these stumbling blocks. Not only so you don't fall over them, but so your teammates don't fall over them because you don't want to be a stumbling block for anyone else. Because if you do, it may cause a pileup of potentially epic proportions. This past week, I've been doing quite a bit of studying in Matthew 18, which is really a unit, and we're going to take it in two weeks. But if we are going to summarize Matthew 18 in just two words, I think those two words would be this, stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks. See, we're so familiar with Matthew 18 with the process of dealing with a stumbling believer, which is go to them, tell them their fault, bring somebody else along, you know, that whole process. A lot of us are familiar with that passage. But that passage actually begins back here in verse 5. And so we're going to see that this morning. And in this passage, it's all about stumbling blocks, which might be a surprise for you because out of all of Jesus' teachings throughout the book of Matthew, I think Matthew chapter 18 might be one of the most commonly misunderstood passages out of all of the sermons, out of all the teaching we've seen Jesus teach so far throughout the book of Matthew. And why is that? It's because a lot of people, it's like they get to Matthew 18 and Jesus' sermon here, and they're like, well, I don't know what to do with this. Let's just chop it up into nice little fortune cookies and make you know, these little pithy sayings, and, and you know, that'll work. We'll just you know, slap them on you know, a little plaque here and there and just throw them out, you know, those sort of things. Like, you know, bless the little children, don't offend a little child. You know? That's how we start to think about this. But that has nothing to do with what Jesus is actually teaching in this passage, not even close. For what Jesus is actually teaching in Matthew 18 is about avoiding stumbling blocks, about dealing with stumbling blocks that show up in the Christian life. And yet, as we said, that's not how that passage is often handled. How is this passage usually handled? It's handled as if it's instructions for how to love little children. But my question is, who honestly needs those instructions? Right? Like, Love a little child? Okay, I can do that. They're cute. Babies are nice. Who doesn't love babies? I mean, you have to be a special kind of monster to not love a little baby, you know? 
I mean, you think about it, some of the meanest, nastiest people that you've known in your life, like, you know, somebody walks by and they just have this, like, kind of growl at them, but a baby comes along, like, oh, it's a baby, it's so cute, you know? Like, they get all excited about it. doesn't matter how nasty of a person they are. However, this passage is not about babies, not even close. Uh, in fact, in Matthew 18, it's not about loving little children, it's about loving the children of God. And the baby, the illustration of the little child, serves as an illustration for that truth that Jesus is trying to drive home to his disciples. Why do I say that? Well, that's because that's exactly what verse 3 tells us. Look at verse 3 if you have your Bibles. Matthew 18, verse 3. I'll give you a second, second to open your Bibles there. Verse 3 says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, in verse 1, as we saw last week, it begins with the disciples asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, and if you remember, there's a whole lot more going on in that specific question than Matthew's account informs us of. And we look to the other gospels and we find out why that question was asked and why was it asked? It was asked because they weren't innocently wondering about it. They were arguing over who was the greatest in the kingdom. And so then Jesus uses this opportunity to come along and say, look, you guys are so worried about your position in the kingdom of heaven. But have you ever stopped to consider you might not even be in the kingdom of heaven at all? Especially with the way you're talking right now, arguing about who's the greatest. That sounds like a non-kingdom citizen. That sounds like somebody who's not in the kingdom whatsoever. For true kingdom citizens don't talk that way. Because true citizens are what? They're humble. How humble? That's where the illustration comes in. Jesus pops a little small child, most likely a baby, up on his lap and says, humble is this. This is the disposition you must have to be a kingdom citizen, to enter it at all. And to the degree that you are humble like this child is actually the degree to which you will be great in my father's kingdom. It's a totally upside down way. As we talked about last week, we learned that Jesus was teaching them that the way to go up is what? Down. Right? The way to go forward is to go to the back of the line. Totally revolutionary thinking here. Now, a lot of you missed last week due to sickness or whatever, uh, and that's all the time I actually have to review this anymore, but we have a live stream and recording and podcast, so if you missed it, that's, that's on you, not me. Uh, but the point here is simply this. Jesus is teaching us to do something here. He isn't, I should say, teaching us to do something here that we all naturally do, not even close. He's using this illustration of a little child to teach us how we are to help each other avoid stumbling blocks. So how can we do that? Three ways. To avoid stumbling, we must understand the stumbles we make, secondly, the stumbles we take, and finally, the stumblers that we must catch. Let's look at that first one, the stumbles that we make. Uh, In verses 6 through 9, Jesus provides a very dire warning, doesn't he? I mean, this is no, like, just, hey, be careful. No, this is a very dire warning about those who might cause a child of the Father to stumble. And he says that given the option between causing one of these little ones, one of the people of God to stumble, you would be better off not causing them to stumble and instead go taking a massive giant stone, tie that thing around your neck and go for a swim. That's what he's saying. That's how serious this is. Your state would be better off if you had done that over causing one of the father's children to stumble. Now, drowning, as awful as that is, 
That is much more preferred, Jesus says, than causing them to stumble and going on then to face the wrath of an all-powerful, holy, eternal God. That's his point. It's really that simple. And in case we didn't hear what Jesus is saying, he goes on in verses 7 through 9 with another illustration to drive that point home, to make it crystal clear, because he wants the disciples to get this. They have to get this if they're going to be kingdom citizens, and they have to get this if they're going to be effective kingdom citizens. And so the point he makes is you better start cutting off limbs, you'd be better off gouging out eyes than becoming a stumbling block for other Christians. That's how serious this is. And this illustration is one that we're pretty familiar with. If you're getting deja vu, it's probably because you remember this gouging out eyes, cutting off limbs illustration, because Jesus used it back in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount. Except for in that situation, he's talking about personal sin. He's saying if you have personal sin in your life, you're better off cutting off the hand that makes you sin than you are to go on and sin. But here, Jesus is using that same illustration, but he's applying it corporately towards other people. Why do I say that? Well, I mean, because here's the reality. If you just pick this verse out of context, it looks like he's just repeating himself what he said back in Matthew chapter 5, but he's not. Look at verse 7. Jesus is talking about what in verse 7? The world's temptations. He says, woe to the world for temptation to sin. Woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And so then with that being the context, that's where he says you'd be better off chopping off limbs, hand, foot, gouging out eye than becoming a stumbling block for somebody else. It's actually a pretty brilliant illustration. And so when it comes to causing somebody else to stumble, you'd be better off amputating your your limbs or drowning in the sea than doing any of that. So don't do it. Make sure you're living your life in a way where you're not stumbling and not causing somebody else to stumble. Because make no mistake, as we saw in that video, our stumbles affect everybody else, do they not? They absolutely can and do. The point here is, if you are a perpetual stumbling block for others, then what does Jesus say your outcome is? It's the fiery wrath of an eternal God. Okay? It's not just discipline. He's saying, if you are a perpetual stumbling block, the fires of hell await for you. Now, here's the thing about stumbling blocks. You can be a stumbling block, a stumbling block by the things you do, and you can be a stumbling block by the things you don't do. The fancy theological term for this are sins of commission and sins of omission. I don't see anyone writing it down. You should. It's going to be on the test. Uh, But sins of omission and commission. So which one do you want to tackle first? Well, we're going to do the one I want because that's what I put in the order here. So let's deal with the sins of commission first. The, The sins that we do that cause other people to stumble. What are some of those? Without a doubt, one of those has to be, if you know anything about theology or doctrine, is theology or doctrine. Theology or doctrine absolutely can cause another person to stumble if you have bad theology or doctrine. And that's one of the reasons, as a church, we do our absolute best, imperfect, obviously, but we do our absolute best to take false teaching seriously. Okay, not tertiary stuff, no, not little speculative things. The Bible tells us don't go beyond what is written for... Corinthians 4, 6, I believe. Why? Because it'll make us puffed up. Don't argue about genealogies. Don't sit here and get into the nitty gritty on stuff and fight and clash over it like it's a blood sport just because you like to argue. Okay, we're not talking about that. We're talking about serious doctrine, important doctrines. And sadly, in our culture, the list of important doctrines has been shrunk from about here to about there. 
And so we need to remember here that doctrine is important. Bad doctrine hurts people. It messes up their life. As a pastor, I would, I would venture to say every problem I face is a problem of bad doctrine. It's a problem of bad theology. And so here's the thing. If you're going around teaching bad doctrine, then make no mistake, you are guilty of being a stumbling block for others. And if you say, well, great, good, I don't do that. I'm not a teacher. I'm not, I don't teach Sunday school at all. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. We can easily push bad doctrine in our hallways, can't we? We can just as easily push bad doctrine in conversations in the lobby and on our Facebook pages than we can standing before a congregation preaching the word of God. And we all are guilty of doing this at times. So whether we are an official teacher of the church or a non-official teacher who just throws out our ideas, uh, our doctrinal positions, we better buckle up because what Jesus says, if we do that in a poor way, if we lead people astray with bad doctrine... Judgment awaits us. So this is a very serious thing. Now, why do I say that? Am I just exaggerating here? No, I say that because Jesus' half-brother James says that. Here's what he says. He says in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Why? Because we will incur a stricter judgment. This is serious stuff. And so if I'm going to open my mouth and declare, thus saith the Lord, I had best be sure that the Lord hath actually saith it. And yes, that is proper old English. I checked. (laughs) Ignorance is not an excuse when it comes to this. You know, if you get pulled over for driving down the highway, going 115 miles an hour in a a 25 mile per hour zone, you're not gonna be like, well, I didn't see the, I didn't see the speed limit officer. You can't give me a ticket. He's gonna be like, ah, yes, I can. You should have known better. There was a sign right back there. You should have read it and you should have slowed down. And yet how many times do Christians do the same thing? They speed on right by, pushing their bad doctrine under the excuse that they don't know any better. And yet the word of God gives us every sign we need and more to have the doctrine we are to be accountable for. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for reproof and correction for doctrine instruction so that the man of God might be fully equipped for every good work. Not 50% of them, not 75% of them, fully equipped for every good work. And so if you're an opinionated person who just has to share every little unstudied, unthought-out theological thought that comes to your mind, then might I suggest something to you? Might I suggest Jesus's ambulatory instructions towards your tongue? Because losing your tongue, if you think about it, That's much more preferred than losing your soul in the eternal fires of hell, is it not? I'd make that trade any day of the week. And I make a living by my tongue. So it's it's an easy trade for me. It should be for you too. So question for you. Is the solution to simply zip our mouths shut whenever somebody starts talking theology until we're absolutely 100%, 150%, let's say, sure of that theology? Well, I don't want to say Jesus is Lord. I might be wrong. You know, is that what we're supposed to do? Absolutely not. Because here's the reality. You can still be a stumbling block by what you don't say. And that's where the sins of omission comes in. See, sins of commission are, I come along and I give you bad doctrine. Doctrine of demons is what the scriptures call it. And that leads you to fall and to stumble. But at the same time, if I don't call out bad doctrine, then I'm still leading others to stumble. 
Think about this. If you're going along in the biking race, right, as your team, think you're in the Tour de France and somebody's about, you know, 10 yards behind you and you see a big obstacle, you know, somebody, somebody throws a banana peel. I don't know if they're slippery, but they always are in the cartoons. But somebody throws one out onto the road and you're like, ooh, I don't want to say anything because it might not be slippery. It might, you know, I'm just not going to say nothing. Are you responsible for that? Absolutely you are. A good teammate points out obstacles in their teammate's way because we're a team. And so the loving, non-stumbling block thing to do then is to warn them when you are able to. And if we don't, we're being a stumbling block. And that is an extremely unpopular thing in our culture today, isn't it? Right? You ever heard this? Doctrine divides, but love unites. Man, that's a mantra that's in almost every evangelical church that you will bump into these days, sadly. Not all of them, praise God, but a lot of them. It's this idea that, hey, you can't call out bad theology. Who are you to know what truth is? It's almost like everybody's adopt Pilate's persona where it's like, what is truth? You know? And we have the truth of God, and we're responsible for the truth of God. And yet, when we point out the truth of God, what are we often labeled as? Critical. Oh, you're so judgmental. Lighten up. Come on, is it really that serious? Like, go, go for a, a stroll in the park or something. Just take a breather. And if you really upset people by pushing doctrine, uh, you might see them pull out the big guns if they get upset enough, and they're going to call you a Pharisee. You ever heard that before? All the time, oh, that person's just a Pharisee. That's all they are. And after all, who wants to be a Pharisee? I don't. I mean, look how Jesus talked to the Pharisees. It was not in a, in a stellar, uplifting way. No, he called them whitewashed tombs. So I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a, a Pharisee. I'm going to be quiet. Just zip, done. And yet, if we do that, we are guilty of causing the little children of God to stumble. And if that's you, look at Jesus' warning where he says, woe unto you. That's a serious, like, woe is not just like, hmm, that's a bad idea. Woe is like, yeah, that's bad. Woe unto you. Judgment upon you is what he's saying. Do you realize that there's a bajillion different ways that we can cause someone to stumble by the things we do or fail to do? And we only have time to cover a jamillion of them, but... Out of these, uh, I just want to rattle off several examples. You can write them down. You can think about them over the next week. And in fact, I would encourage you. I mean, I was laying there trying, every Saturday night I try to sleep. It doesn't work too well. My brain just flies. But I was started thinking of all the different ways that I'm guilty myself of this. I encourage you to do the same. We need to reflect on these things. We need to dig deeply into these things and examine ourselves, not only to see that we're in the faith, but for those of us who are in the faith, to make sure we're not being stumbling blocks for others. So let's rattle off a few of these here. Parents, you're first. Do you ever cause your children to stumble? Uh, And before I give some more examples there, I don't know this for sure, but to me, reading this passage, that seems like a double guilty sort of thing, doesn't it? I mean, you're not only making God's children stumble, you're making literal children stumble. People who are vulnerable people who haven't grown up and matured intellectually to be able to look at the Word of God and to understand the Word of God and to have it saturate their minds and their souls and their hearts. So parents, do you provoke your children with wrath, either with harsh discipline or inconsistent discipline? Because make no mistake, both of those extremes are absolutely going to cause that child to stumble. Fathers, are you leading your family as the spiritual leaders of the home, or are you neglecting your duty 
It's not your wife's duty. It's your duty. You're responsible for it. Don't get me wrong, women. You have a role to play here and you have some responsibility. But if there's a problem in the broom household and God shows up and knocks, he's not going to come talk to Becky. He's going to come and sit me down and say, what's going on over here? Because I'm responsible for it. So fathers, are you being the spiritual leaders of your home or are you being spiritually deadbeat dads who do not lead your family to love and worship God through your example? Fathers, are you teaching your children? Or is that what Sunday school's for? It's not. That's, that's a supplement to your mission, to your responsibility. But make no mistake about it, we are responsible for teaching our children. So the question isn't, are you teaching your children? Because we all are teaching our children. The question is, what are we teaching our children? Are you teaching them to love the God of this world? Or are you teaching them to love this world and to make this world their God? Wives, you're next. How about loving your husbands? And even the unlovely ones like myself who are quite irritating at times. Uh, and a whole lot of guys, I think, would raise their hand when it comes to that. So wives, are you loving your husbands and caring for them as your helpmeet, which you were created to be? If you read Genesis, that's, that's, what you were, that's your main duty you were made for, is to be a helpmeet to your husband. Are you respecting him only when he's respectable, or are you respecting him even when he's not respectable because you respect your heavenly Father in heaven who's commanded you to respect them? Husbands and wives, are you both loving each other, meeting each other's needs regularly, both physically and emotionally, which is absolutely essential if we're going to help one another avoid stumbling blocks? And the one that comes to mind right there is lust. And make no mistake, lust is not just a man's battle, it's a woman's battle too might show up a little bit differently, but it's still a battle. It's a humanity problem, not a gender problem. So the question is, are you? Are you meeting each other's needs as you've been commanded to do, or are you only doing it when you feel like it? Are you only respecting one another, loving one another, caring for one another, putting their preferences and their needs above your own when you feel like it, or are you doing it all the time like God commands you to? All right, church, we're next. Do you show love towards the least of these? And I was thinking about this. Uh, this was kind of convicting for me, but it's easy to love children, especially my own children. But when it comes to God's children, there's children and then there's little, little children, isn't there? I mean, the reality is there's somebody in the kingdom of heaven who's the most dense, not getting it, difficult out of all of them to deal with, Right? Do you love them? Or do you flock towards those who are more lovable? When the children of this church, all right, what's, this passage isn't primarily about that, but it applies, does it not? Do you greet the children of the church when they come in? Do you know them by name? Or do you only know their parents? It's convicting stuff. Do you love the unlovely? Do you love the social outcast, the prickly people who will sometimes hurt you when you love them? and hug them? Or do you only show love towards the lovable, the people who serve you in all the ways that you demand? Do you speak to each other with words of kindness, or do you speak to each other with words of bitterness, resentment, or harshness? And when you think somebody else might have spoken to you in that way, do you judge them as worthless, as vile sinners who should be cast out immediately? Uh, or do you give them the benefit of the doubt? See, here's the thing. 
So many times the problems in the church are based upon not because somebody actually was a stumbling block and they sinned against us, but it comes because of miscommunication. It comes because of assumptions. And yet how often we think we have a God's eye view of what a person said and what they meant. And how often are we wrong? And if that's you, any of the things we just talked about, then you might want to pay a visit to Milestones R Us and go for a little swim, is what Jesus tells us. Because this is serious stuff. Very serious stuff. Have you ever heard the expression, no man is an island? It's true, right? No man is an island because what you do or fail to do absolutely affects those around you. It absolutely does. And so if you don't recognize that, the truth is you're going to constantly be a stumbling block uh, for others, the kind of stumbling block that Jesus warns very seriously about. Let me ask you a question here. Does going to, it's not a trick question, does going to church every Sunday make you a Christian? No, it doesn't. Does reading your Bible and praying every day earn you salvation? No. But do these things affect those around you? Absolutely they do. You better believe they do. And the reason for this is that ever since the fall of humanity into sin, we all tend to play the comparison game. This is just one of the reasons. There's many reasons for this. And here's what this looks like. We look at those around us and we think, I'm not so bad, especially compared to that group over there. My goodness, you know, they're, I'm doing way better than them. Sure, I'm not perfect. I need a little supplemental grace. I could use a deposit of God's grace into my account, but overall, I'm doing pretty good if you look at these jokers over here. They're not even close. And that's how, uh, that's how this tends to work. But the reality is no man's an island. And what we do absolutely affects one another. And it's for this reason, at our church, we, we try our best to hold leadership to a high standard. Because if the worship team doesn't come to Sunday school, if the deacons or the church leaders show up sporadically here and there every other week or whatever, if our ministry leads and teachers are going around being active stumbling blocks, causing division, do you know what's going to happen? Everyone else is going to see that. And they're going to start using that as the measurement standard for themselves. And so, yeah, when it comes to leadership in this church, we absolutely do not adopt a if you build it, they will come mentality. And what I mean by that is simply to say, we don't take the mindset that says, hey, that person looks like they might have some potential. Let's throw them into a leadership position and see if they rise up to what the standard is. We don't do that because one, we're not commanded to do that. And secondly, that's going to cause the rest of this body to begin stumbling more and more and more. Instead, what do we do? We wait until God provides qualified leaders who are actively serving according to the biblical qualifications within the church. And so this coming year, 2023, we're looking to ordain a whole lot of deacons in this church. And I can promise you something. The criteria is not leadership potential, it's leadership in practice. You get the difference between that? It's not, oh, maybe we could put them in and we'll see how they shine. No, we're looking for people who are already meeting the qualifications of deacon and serving as if they were a deacon, even if they don't have that title. Deacon is servant. That's all it is. Diakonos, it's to be a servant. It's to wait tables. It's not to sit back on a deacon's meeting once a month and sit there and make all the high-level decisions and pass it down to you all who go work at it. No, deacons lead by example. Deacons wipe tables. Deacons do the, the minutia of the church that nobody wants to do, and they set the example for that. 
We don't do this because we're legalistic, at least we hope not. We don't do this because we're self-righteous Pharisees. Why do we do this? We do this because we take stumbling blocks seriously, and we take stumbling blocks seriously because Jesus took them seriously. He took them so very seriously. He took them of deadly seriously. He took them deadly seriously. And the reason he took them so seriously is why? Ultimately, I think it's because Jesus took hell seriously. That's what he's alluding to in this passage. That's what he's, he's not alluding to it. He's specifically mentioning it. So the question is, how about you? For if you don't take this seriously, not only will you lead others to stumble, but you too will stumble, which leads us to our second point. To avoid stumbling, we must understand the stumbles we make, but also, secondly, the stumbles that we take. In verses 10 through 14, we read a well-known passage about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, the one wandering sheep, or we might say the one stumbling sheep. And make no mistake about it, every single one of us who is a child of God was at one point that wandering sheep, were we not? Absolutely we were. And until you come to see this, until you come to understand that you were the one sheep that Christ went after, you're going to be a stumble-causing stumbler. It works. A stumble-causing stumbler is exactly what you're going to be because what you're going to be as a stumble-causing stumbler is you're going to be a part of the world system as Jesus pronounces a woe upon. He says, woe unto this world because this world is guilty for causing stumbling blocks to the children of God. And if we are in that category, what that means is we're headed towards the eternal judgment of hell. Every single one of us is a stumbler at heart. We all are. We're born that way. We're a stumbler at heart who stumbles around crashing into others, causing harm to both ourselves and them. And these stumbles, don't misunderstand me here. I'm not just saying, oh, they're mistakes. They are, but they're way worse than that. What does the Bible call these mistakes? Sin. And what is sin? It's rebellion against a holy God is what it is. It's not just a oops, a boo-boo, and a, a, mess, a, a mess up. It's sin. When a sheep wanders off away from the flock, do you know what that sheep's survival rate is? Zero. You don't see sheep off living by themselves in the middle of the mountains. They, they fall into a ravine and die, or they get devoured by some sort of predator. So unless that sheep is saved, that sheep will absolutely perish. And yet, that's precisely what God did for us. He saved us so that we would not perish. And how did he do that? By sending Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, who came to seek and save the lost. And he did so by going to a cross. See, on the cross, the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep to save the sheep. On the cross, the good shepherd became lost so that we lost sheep could be found. In the darkness then, he cried out as he was lost, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in response, what did he hear? Silence. Heaven was closed to him, and no one came to his rescue. Why? Because that's what was necessary to save the one lost wandering sheep, which was us. And so Christ perished in our place. And why? Because as verse 14 says, it was the will of his Father in heaven to save us. Another passage in the Bible says it was the will of the Father to crush him. And he was crushed in our place. So do we still stumble? Yes. Do we still fall? Yes. 
But because of what Christ did, we don't stay down. Proverbs 24, 16 says, though the righteous falls seven times, what do they do? They get back up again. And the reason we get back up again is because Christ was crushed for us. And Christ was crushed for us in order to save us from the one and only stumble and fall that could ever truly keep us down. And that was the wrath of an eternal God. On the cross, Christ absorbed the wrath of God in our place so we wouldn't have to. And so because he did, we now have a unmovable, always going to be there, fastened and secured safety net beneath us that will cushion our fall. It will not destroy us. It can never truly harm us. And it's because God has personally guaranteed our ultimate eternal safety. It leads us to our final point. To avoid stumbling, we got to understand the stumbles we make, the stumbles we take, and finally, the stumblers that we must catch. When that lost sheep returns, verse 13 tells us how the Father rejoices in heaven. And I don't know about you, but the image that comes to my mind is the story of the prodigal son. When he was out, lost, wandering about, and then when he comes home, what does his father do? Throws a party for him. He's delighted. He's excited. He's thrilled. And all of this goes to show us, church, an important truth that we must not forget, and it's this. Our Heavenly Father loves us. He cares for us in ways that are beyond our wildest imaginations. And yet we so quickly forget this truth, don't we? We quickly start to think that our Father in Heaven is a reluctant Father whose care is forced upon us like child support. And yet that couldn't be further from the truth, could it? The truth is, he loves and cares for us beyond anything we could possibly fathom. And so if God loves his little children to that degree, the logical question then is, should I not then love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as he loved me? And the answer is yes. And the answer is yes, because 1 John 4.11 tells us that the answer is yes. And 1 John 4.11 says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. And yet, how often... We sadly do not. How often we forget that we too are stumblers ourselves who've stumbled in so many ways in our lives. And we often see this where older Christians come along and they start despising their younger brothers and sisters in Christ, being annoyed by their stumbling. It's like, come on, we just get it together? Like, what, what is your deal here? And it's actually kind of ridiculous if you think about it. It's kind of like an older brother or sister seeing their you know, one-year-old brother or sister taking their first steps and doing so very imperfectly, right? And you watch them taking those steps, it's boom, boom, face plant, boom, boom, face plant. And it's the same thing spiritually. And yet, in a response, we can sometimes start to become annoyed by their stumbling. What are you doing? That's not how you do it. Walk like this. Why aren't you running yet? You know, that sort of a thing. It's like, well, they're not running yet because they're still a toddler in Christ and they're working at it. And you just yelling at them and getting after them every two seconds with that scolding look on your face isn't going to help them. Yet how often we despise those infants in the faith, expecting them to run before they've even learned to walk. And the other illustration that comes to my mind there, and we're going to get to this in the next, I don't know when, soon, uh, but is in that parable of the prodigal son, what does the older brother do? He's upset. He's mad about that younger brother who returned home. And yet we can so easily become like that, can't we? We can begin to despise 
our younger prodigal brother and sisters in Christ. What does Jesus say about this despising in verse 10? He says, don't do it. Look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And what most commentators think this means is this. They think it means God cares so much for his little children that he sends his angels from heaven, angels that are of great position in the kingdom of heaven, angels who stand before the face of their father. And that's no little thing, to stand before the face of the father of heaven. Now, I don't have time here to teach a full course on angelology, but the short version is this. God cares for his little children so much that he sent the armies of heaven to protect them. And I don't pretend to know how all of this guardian angel stuff works, not even a little bit, but I know it works because Hebrews 1.14 and many other passages say it works. Here's what Hebrews 1.14 says. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, that's not angels for the lost, is it? That's angels for the children of God who minister to us, who protect us. I don't know how that works, but I know it works. And so the point is, we must not despise those whom the Father has gone to such great lengths to protect, to care for. We must, as verse 5 says, receive them. And that's really the contrast here between despising someone. If you're not going to despise them, what are you going to do? If you're going to put off despising, you're going to put on receiving them. To borrow Ephesians 4 terminology, you're going to not despise them, you're going to receive them. And this is so important. Why is it important? Look what the text says. To receive them is to receive Christ. You see that? To receive them is to receive Christ. And if I think we can turn the logic around on this, which means to reject them is to reject Christ. Is it not? Absolutely. And this actually makes a whole lot of sense if you think about it, because if you despise my kids, if you look down upon them and you start mistreating them, you and I are going to have a real problem. And that goes the other direction. If I start despising your kids and looking down on them, you're not going to think too highly of me, are you? You're going to be upset, and rightly so. Because why? Because to mistreat my children is a way of mistreating me. It absolutely is. You cannot separate me from my children. And the same thing is true of God and his children. And yet, oh, how quickly we often forget this. And it shows up with us bad-mouthing one another, speaking poorly of one another, gossiping about one another, slandering one another. And just like that, we are not accepting one another as we're commanded to. You see now why 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And with that, 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. See, here's my problem with professing Christians who don't love the church. Maybe they hardly come to church. Maybe they come a bit, but they're, you know, they're not really doing anything. They're not using their gifts to build up the children of God as they're commanded to. Shameless plug for our building up one another class. But my problem is this. They claim to love God, but the evidence for that is just not there. So my question for them comes largely out of 1 John, and I would ask you to read this passage if this week. You know, look at it. Check out. Just read the whole short book. 
But my question is this. You say you love God, whom you can't see, but why then do you not love your brother or sister who's made in the image of God, whom you can see? Do you see the dilemma there? That's John's question. John says, you can't do it. You can't claim to love God and despise your brother and sister in Christ whom you, can't, who you, whom you can see. So then, do you want to know how you can tell that somebody is truly born again, that they're truly a child of God? I'll give you just a few uh, that are largely based upon 1 John, but for one, this person loves being with the people of God. And when they can't, whether that's due to sickness, travel, or whatever, they legit miss being with God's people. Secondly, they don't hold grudges. They forgive quickly. Why? Not because that person is worthy of forgiveness, but because our Father who is in heaven forgave me when I was unworthy of forgiveness. See how that works? And third, when you see another brother and sister in Christ stumbling into sin, it doesn't make you angry at them. It makes your heart ache for them in a way that leads you to go after them and to try to bring that wandering sheep home. And to see what that looks like, you need to read the rest of Matthew 18, verse 15, and we're going to get to that in about two weeks for part two. Uh, for one, because I don't have time to preach this whole chapter, and two, I'm off next week. So in two weeks, we're going to come back and we're going to look at the rest of this chapter and see what this looks like to go after that wandering sheep. And, we're, and make no mistake, we're commanded to go after wandering sheep. But think about this for a minute. How many churches, evangelical, Bible-believing churches, know what Matthew 18 says, but when a brother or sister in Christ wanders off, they sit there on their hands and do nothing? A lot, right? How many churches practice church discipline? That's what Matthew 18 is really talking about. It's going after each other through discipline. Hardly any do this. I'm not exaggerating here. Hardly any do this. They just don't do it. And a big part of that, a big part of the reason is that they care more about their reputations than they do the souls of those that they've been tasked to protect. Excommunication. What? You can't say that word. That's... That's unloving. You can't do that. That's judgmental. That's legalistic. What if people hear about that? What, you know what kind of reputation this church will get if we actually do this? I've heard people say just that before. Have you? Absolutely they do. In which the right response to that is to look them in the eyes and say, yeah, who cares? Who cares what people will think? Because the audience that I seek approval from is an audience of one, and that audience is our Father who is in heaven not the rest of the people around us who desperately need you and I to practice Matthew 18 and go after wandering sheep. After Jesus' resurrection, do you remember what he said to Peter after Peter denied him three times? He asked him a question. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, of course, Lord, I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. Three times he said that, which countered Peter's denial of Jesus, which he did three times. And what's interesting about that is the word for feed there is poiomeno, which means to pastor or to tend the flock. So what he's saying is, Peter, do you love me? Care for my flock. Tend the flock. Take care of the other sheep. And you know what? If we love Christ, we will do just that. We will do our best to remove stumbling blocks in the flock's way. We will do our best to help them back up when they fall. 
And when they wander off, we will go after them and do our best to bring them home, just as Christ did for us. And we do this because of our love for Christ, because of our appreciation for the good shepherd who did all of that and more for us. There's a lot in this text, a lot of convicting things in this text. But praise God for Christ, who is the good shepherd, who came after us, brought us home, so that we too are now then commissioned to go out and seek and save the lost as well. And so may we as a church love Christ by caring for the ones whom Christ suffered and died for in order to save. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that we would do these things by your power and not our flesh. Lord, we are guilty as charged when it comes to this passage, all of us. And so we praise you for the blood of Jesus, which covers that guilt. Father, I just pray that this text, that Matthew 18, would be not just something that the ears of this church hear, but something that the hearts hear and bring deep within us and live by these things. Help us to love one another. Help us to care for one another. And not just those who it's easy to care for, but for those who it's really hard to care for. The prickly people who, are, who have rough edges. Help us to care for them as you cared for us. For you are a holy God, and yet you came to seek and save sinners. And so we praise you for that. Help us now as we come before the Lord's table to examine ourselves to see if there be any wicked way in us and help us to repent and turn from that, that we might be the righteous man who has fallen and gets back up again, whether that's seven times, eight times, or 8,000 times. And we know that that is only possible because the shed blood of Jesus and your grace and your mercy, which empowers us to do so. So we thank you. We praise you for Christ, who took the one and only fall that could ever truly destroy us. So help us to live in the victory that he purchased for us through his blood. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.